Would you all pray with me? Almighty God, we are grateful that you have gathered us here today by your spirit and by your word, and we pray that you would send us out rejoicing in your name. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, my father-in-law is a, is a surgeon back in the town that Caroline, my wife, and I grew up in, and he has been practicing surgery in this town for a little over 30 years now. And one of the things that he does to unwind at the end of a long day in surgery is watch Hallmark movies. You know those really bad ones that come on late at night that no one cares to watch unless you happen to be plagued by some uh, bug or illness or something. Those really bad ones. He loves those. Loves those awful Hallmark movies. And I have watched a few of those very bad Hallmark movies with him. And I've noticed that uh, the problem with them is not simply the bad acting, of which there is quite a bit. The, the problem is in the structure of the narrative itself. The problem you see is that the low point is always either not low enough or it's all too predictable. You can kind of see things resolving from a mile away. Sometimes there's not even any conflict to begin with. It's just a series of sort of connected events, and it doesn't really ha- it doesn't go anywhere. And I think that's probably why my father-in-law likes them, in fact. doesn't have to think. But if you think about it, the best movies, all of the movies that you and I love that we watch again and again, they all have a severe low point, right? They all have some really bad moment where you just can't see how things work out in the end. In other words, for a story to be gripping, for it to hold your attention and pull you into its narrative, it has to have a low point, a bad one. A really good story will always press you to wonder how hopeless could this possibly get? And I think this is a good question, actually, for all of us to ponder during the Advent season about our own stories, about our family's stories, about the church's stories. How hopeless can our stories get before there is simply nothing left to hope in? Let me tell you another story. At the very beginning of the story of all stories, the Bible, God creates Israel and his plan for her is to become a kingdom. He wants them to become a people who would reflect his own character in the world, a people who would be corporately united under one rule and organized into a priestly nation, which means they would be set apart. They would be a a bright light for all the world to see God's goodness and his graciousness and his glory. And eventually, this kind of happens. If you go through the Old Testament, you'll see around 2 Samuel, Israel does become a kingdom, not just with God as her king, but with a human king, and a real territory, and a real temple, and an actual history that you can go look up in history books and such. But as she grew more prominent and established under the reign of her first kings, Saul, and then David and Solomon, you see that cracks begin to emerge. Other kings come And with that, there are lapses in her moral discernment and the leadership. Then there is widespread idolatry that comes and goes. 
And then finally, there's a corporate disregard for the poor, which is a symbol of her own hard-heartedness. And that's what a disregard for the poor actually is. It shows us that our hearts are hardened. And eventually, she is weakened spiritually and organizationally, which is really the same thing in the nation of Israel. And she is finally brought to ruin. You know the story. She is dragged into captivity under the Babylonians. And this is an immensely important moment for her because she is publicly debased. All of her most beloved artifacts brought to nothing. Her buildings are razed to the ground. And her reputation is brought to absolutely nothing. She spends 70 long years in exile. But at the end of those 70 years, a miracle occurs. Persia shows up and conquers the Babylonians, and she is released. But even more than that, she is given support to rebuild both her city and her temple, and she's given safe return to the land that is hers. And you see, the surprise here, the surprise in the narrative is more than coincidence. It is far too good to be coincidence. It's a story, in fact, of resurrection. Because we see her going from no kingdom at all, actually being under a different king, to having everything that she needs to rebuild her kingdom. And they do. But you know the story. As soon as she is back, as soon as she's back, she once more descends into unfaithfulness. Even as she rebuilds the walls of her temple, her people become tight-fisted, they become untrusting of their God, and ultimately they become idolatrous. And at this point, you might be safe in asking, how worse could it get? Is there any hope left? Because at this point, Israel is worse than she was before. She is mired in her own ingratitude, in her own corruption. She has received mercy beyond mercy, and yet she is on the verge of a self-imposed oblivion. And so that's how the Old Testament ends, just like that. In the book of Malachi, with these final words, I will send you Elijah, a prophet. You will turn your hearts lest I strike the land with absolute destruction. Think about it. The last word of the Old Testament, it's destruction. Or better translated, cursed. The very last word. And so one again rightly wonders, can this story get any more hopeless? Is there even any hope left at all? And the answer, of course, is a resounding and unqualified but complicated yes. Yes, there is still hope. Because if you jump forward 400 years in our gospel reading, we learn that the prophet Elijah mentioned in Malachi, this person has come. But this time his name is no longer Elijah, it is John. And he has a similar message as Elijah and Malachi. He says, be ready. The Lord is on the move. The Lord is coming. Make way. And he, of course, is absolutely right. All of the prophecies, they all hold true. But see, here's the complicated part. When this Lord does show up, when he finally emerges on the scene as Malachi and Elijah and Isaiah and all of the prophets witness to, 
when he finally shows up to set things straight, he is rejected. Jesus Christ, the one who comes anointed, he is rejected. It's not just by the Israelites. He is condemned by Caiaphas, yes, an Israelite, but also by Pilate, a name mentioned in our gospel reading, in fact, a Gentile. And what that means is Jesus is not simply condemned by Israelites, as some Christians have very wrongly claimed, but he is condemned by Gentiles just like you and me. Where am I going here? Can't this story get a little hopeful? You see, if Advent is about hoping in the second coming of Christ, then the first thing that you have to understand before you can even begin to hope in the second coming is you have to understand the first. You have to see how he comes in the first place. In other words, if you want to see what Advent hope is actually like, not just a hallmark expression or a half-hearted dream or positive vibes, if you want real Advent hope that you can cling to, you have to place yourself in the details of the story right before the coming of Christ because it is our story too. You see, when we look back at the history of Israel hoping for a Redeemer and we see this exhausting and protracted hope in a Redeemer, that too is our hope. Because if you think about it, standing in the book of Malachi, looking back at the years, centuries of Israel's history, you see struggle, you see failure, you see misplaced hope, you see abiding hope, you see destruction. But likewise, if you are a Christian and you are looking back at Christian history today, what do you see? You see things like crusades and genocides, the buying and selling of human beings, you see disregard for the poor, or even recently institutional corruption and abuse that could go on. My point is, when you look back on our history, it is not a predictable arc of progression, just like Israel. You see, when you look back at our family story, it is complex and mired and requiring hope. So how hopeless can it get? Well, here is the unmissable, essential detail that you can't miss. If you wade through all of the books of the, of the Old Testament and you finally arrive at Malachi and you transition into the New Testament, what you find is that Israel has dwindled down. They have become refined. They're purified, as Malachi puts it, into one single faithful human being. There is one man left standing at the end of the Old Testament. Israel is no longer a kingdom. They aren't a tribe. There isn't even a committed pure remnant. There is one man left. And of course, that one man is the one man where God also dwells. Because it's Jesus Christ, the perfect Israelite. Don't you see? The whole story culminates into one single hopeless cul-de-sac where there is one faithful human being left. But the hope is that that one person who is left is the one person where God abides in human flesh. You see, Jesus Christ, the coming of Jesus Christ, he is like some army where there is only a single soldier standing, and he's also God. It's remarkable. And so the one place where Israel becomes nothing 
The Old Testament ends, it's teetering on oblivion, and the new begins, and Israel is held captive under the Romans. The one place of hopelessness is precisely that place where God shows up in human flesh that we can see. There God is, the one true Israelite. And so you see, Jesus Christ's first coming is proof. He is proof that God does not abandon Israel, but he is also proof of a down payment, that by his spirit he will endure with us, with the Christian people of God, so that whoever and whatever refines us, at the very bottom will be a rock, which is none other than Jesus Christ. He is with us till the end. Whatever strips us away, whatever our history might be in the future, whatever challenges we might face, the truth of the matter is that down payment begun in Jesus Christ is also a deposit that's, that, that is there. It is our base level, and so whatever stripping away occurs, he is at our root. And that means a few things for us, I think, in this Advent season, quickly. And the first one is this. It means that hope, Advent hope, true, real hope, is not always obvious. But of course, as I mentioned, if it were obvious, it would be a hallmark hope. It wouldn't be real. No one would believe it. True hope is hard to find. It is not obvious. You have to be trained to have the eyes to see. But that's not all. The second thing that I think this reading shows us, series of readings, is that our hope, our Advent hope, is absolutely real. You see, it is not just a theoretical hope or a spiritual hope or a hope simply in an afterlife that we can never imagine. The hope that's professed by the prophets in the Old Testament is a restoration. It is an actual hope. It is a repair. You see, it's a retrieval. And what that means for you and me is that all of the things in our lives that are terrible and unfixable and that we hate about ourselves or our spouses hate about ourselves, all of the things that you and I wish were repaired can be repaired. And I don't know what that means particularly for you. I don't know that it means that you'll be fixed tomorrow or even in 10 years, but it does mean that the hope you have in Advent is a real hope. Because God doesn't come simply to redeem us into some theoretical future. He comes to bring healing. He wants to fix you. And then finally, there is, I think we see at Israel's rock bottom proof that there is no place of hopelessness that God cannot also dwell. You see, Israel's lowest is precisely where God shows up in human flesh, and that means the same for us. It means where the church is left to almost nothing, if that is to be a future. It means where you are left to nothing, that is where God can still dwell. Because remember, the first coming is a deposit. It's a proof that he cares. It's a proof that his presence is real. And by his spirit, he can dwell with you. He can find you. He can meet you. He can comfort you. And whatever your lowest might be. Again, I'm not sure exactly what that means for you and the particulars of your life. But it means that the hope that you have during Advent is something you can cling to. So remember, the hope is not obvious. The hope is real, and the hope is found precisely in the place where you feel most hopeless. That's Advent hope, friends. I hope that you turn to it in this Advent season. 
And I pray and ask all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen.